Hi, you're listening to Artists on Art. I'm very excited for the show that we're having for you today. Again, I'm not Nada Milchkovich. I am Silvana Falcone, guest hosting for Nada, and she will be back in a couple of weeks. Um, today, we have two really wonderful people who are going to be talking to you about the art of storytelling. First, we have Professor Shelley Stamp, who just wrote a book called Lois Weber in Early Hollywood. And for the second half of the show, we have Edward Ramirez, current interim coordinator of the Day Worker Center. Center in Santa Cruz, who was one of the artists affiliated with the very well-received uh, Working for Dignity Collaborative Research Project about low-wage w- labor in Santa Cruz County. The conversation today is about the art of storytelling, and we're looking at this topic through a historical lens in our conversations with Shelley Stamp and with a more contemporary outlook in talking with Edward. The art of storytelling, which includes also the art of writing and the visual dimensions, too, involves carving out the time to tell the story and about having some resilience, as you'll hear about Lewis Weber's story, because you know the story has to be told in some way. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much, Shelley, for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Shelley said, I asked Shelley to send me a bio, and she sent me a very modest bio. So I have to, I had to, I had to, uh, tell you a little bit more about all of the wonderful things that she's been able to do. Um, Shelley Stamp is a film historian and an expert on women and early film culture. Her latest award-winning book, congratulations by the way, Lois Weber in Early Hollywood, was named one of the best films books of 2015 by the Huffington Post and won the special jury prize from the Theater Library Association Book Awards. This is an award that's given for the best English language work of scholarship on theater, film, and broadcasting. Professor Stamp is the recipient of numerous awards, including the National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship in 2012-2013, and was a McGeorge Visiting Fellow at the University of Melbourne in 2013. Professor Stamp has served uh, as a consultant for the National Film Preservation Foundation, the EYEI Film Institute in the Netherlands, Turner Classic Movies, and the American Movie Classic Cable Channel. Lastly, she is the founding editor of Feminist Media Histories, an international journal, and she teaches here at UC Santa Cruz in the Film and Digital Media's department. So again, welcome, Shelley. Thank you. Um, Well, I read your book with a lot of fascination, and I really enjoyed learning about Lois Weber and the kind of contribution she made to the early Hollywood film industry, primarily through silent films. Can you briefly tell our listeners um, who she is and how you actually came to learn about her? Well, I always say that Lois Weber is the most famous filmmaker from early Hollywood that very few people have ever heard of. Um, Even people who know a little bit about early Hollywood have heard of D.W. Griffith and Cecil B. DeMille. Very few people have heard of Weber. But in early Hollywood, her name would have been mentioned alongside theirs as one of the great minds. Um, She had a 30-year-plus career in Hollywood. She came to Hollywood at the very beginning when it was just becoming the center of film production uh, in uh, 1913. She worked uh, throughout the industry uh, at major studios like Universal. She formed her own production company in 1917 uh, and then worked through the 20s and into the early sound era. She actually made um, her last film, a sound picture, in 1934. So throughout these three decades, she made um, hundreds of shorts. She made over 40 feature films. Um, she was the first woman to direct a feature film in the U.S. She was the first woman admitted to the Motion Picture Directors Association 
Association, which is a kind of precursor to the Directors Guild. Um, she was a very important figure who very few people know about. Yeah. Now, I was sort of amazed with the tremendous amount of archival research you did to start putting Lois Weber's story together. Can you um, tell us maybe how long it took you to go through those archives, what some of those archives were, um, and how you came to identify those as the archives for telling the story? Mm-hmm. Well, more than 10 years of research went into this book. Um, Weber was hard to write about because she wrote no memoir, or rather she wrote a memoir whose manuscript was lost and never published. She did not deposit her papers anywhere. Um, Most of the films she made are lost. Very few silent films survive. Um, And Hollywood studios, up until very recently, were notorious for not keeping records, certainly not making those records public. So it was a huge challenge to find scraps of information, to find scraps of information about her and to find the few sur- films that survived. Um, so I-, I was able to find films at the Library of Congress, thank goodness, um, and at other film archives around the country. Uh, UCLA has some prints. Um, archives in Europe had some prints of her films. Um, and I was able to find clippings and uh, news items about her um, in the New York Public Library Performing Arts Collection. They have a really extensive collection um, at USC where they hold scrapbooks from movie fans of this era that collected obsessively about fans, including about stars, including one of the stars she worked with. Um, I combed through old fan magazines, old movie trade journals, uh, old newspapers for any scrap of information I could get about her. But it was really a, a challenge. So you... You learned about her through your other research? Like, how did you kind of latch onto her name? I, a long time ago, um, when I was writing my uh, doctoral dissertation, I. Long time um, ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was doing work on uh, early feminist filmmaking. And, and that dissertation and my first book ended up with a chapter on women's suffrage films. And I had thought at the time that I would also include some work on the films that were made in the 1910s on the fight to legalize birth control. I started researching that along with the women's suffrage pictures. And Weber wrote and directed two feature films on the fight to legalize birth control. And so she became a fascinating figure at the back of my mind, even though I, I dropped that chapter and never really pursued that research. I kept thinking, who is this woman, mm-hmm. and what else did she make, and how could she make those films in her, in early Hollywood? They were big budget studio releases, and so she she was always in the back of my mind, and um, I, she eventually kind of came to the surface, and I thought I need to work on her full time and and really devote myself to this research. Now, do you feel like the book and the work, I know it's getting awards, it's getting some recognition. Is it having the memory and the, or the impact you want it to have? And it, are you finding that you're reviving the memory of Lois Weber? I hope so. Uh, I think it's a, it's a long-term effort. Um, I think the other piece of this, besi- there's a couple of other pieces besides my scholarship. One is that more of her films have to be restored and released on DVD. Um, so several years ago, 
I helped to curate the first international retrospective of her work um, at Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna, a big film preservation festival. That got people excited. Um, later this year, there are two more of her films are coming out on DVD, beautiful restored versions with musical scores. I'm hoping eventually more will, more prints will be discovered, more films will be restored, and more will come out on DVD, because that's a huge part of this, is people being able to see her work. Um, and I'm hoping that um, her story, that, that this book will help her films be taught in more college classes, but also that um, the huge um, number of people who are interested in silent film history um, become more aware of her story. It's happening. It's slow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit then about some of the stories that she wrote and she and she tried to tell it through her work. Um, you talked about her film in, in the book. You talked about her film as navigating um, progressive politics, mm-hmm. right? Trying to sort of broach these topics mm-hmm. that had been untouched before uh, mm-hmm. around birth control, around gender, uh, poverty. Um, and she also encountered quite a bit of censorship um, as well and um, was taken in, you know, is also sort of monitoring celebrity culture and, on, and all these kinds of things. You refer to her as an activist filmmaker, right, in the, in the book and being willing to sort of go there and addressing some of these social um, problems. Addiction is sort of another topic she had explored. Um, are you using the term activist filmmaking or activist filmmaker per- precisely because she was delving into these topics or are there other... Uh, understandings that you, of this term that you're using here to describe her. I just sort of want to unpack the term activist filmmaker yes. and activist filmmaking yes. a bit and, more. And I think that I, I, it was a sort of deliberate choice of mine to call her an activist filmmaker because that's not how she's usually framed. And she's not an activist filmmaker maybe in the way we would think of contemporary media makers being activists. Um, but I think that one of the most important periods of her career is the period in the mid-1910s when um, Hollywood is is coalescing as the dominant entertainment industry in the country when the language of filmmaking is really getting formed and shaped and solidified. And she stakes out uh, a claim that this new medium can be used as a, a forum to uh, fictionalize and dramatize really important Uh, social and political issues for a popular audience. So at the same time that D.W. Griffith and Cecil B. DeMille are proving that cinema is an art form by making um, grandiose racist historical epics and biblical adaptations and literary adaptations, she's going the entirely different route and saying, I'm going to make a popular film on the fight to legalize birth control. I'm going to make a popular film on addiction. I'm going to make a popular film against capital punishment. Uh, I'm going to make a popular film that deals with poverty and women's wage equity. And she does that. So her 1916 film, Where Are My Children, was Universal's top box office film that year. So you have 100 years ago, Universal's top box office release was a film on abortion and birth control written and directed by a woman. So I always say, you know, what was possible 100 years ago seems impossible now. So she's really fat. So that's to me, is an activist. And, of course, she comes at birth control in a way that is difficult for us to think about now. It's, it's laced with eugenics politics, um, and it's not the birth control argument we might make now, but it was incredibly radical then. 
Yeah, I was learn- when I was learning about that film, reading about it in your book, that Where Are My Children, um, that, that's actually something I wanted to sort of talk to you a little bit about, right? This confluence of eugenics and birth control that are happening here, the shaming of privileged women who chose to hold off on motherhood, yet this encouragement of immigrant and working class women to use birth control. Um, so can you talk a little bit about more about, you sort of hinted at it just now about how we can't even have... Uh, how fraught the contemporary debate is even now about um, about contraception. Yes, yes. So, so she makes two feature films on the issue, and the first is the one you're talking about, "Where Are My Children?" That was such a hit with Universal, and it is it's a really interesting and troubling film at the same time, in that it makes an argument for the legalization of birth control by vilifying privileged white women who have abortions. Um, and um, advocating that um, poor immigrant populations and people of color ought to practice birth control. So it's a racist eugenicist argument for birth control. She's not alone in making that argument in 1916, of course, but still, it's a difficult argument for us to see now, right? That that moment when um, birth control, the, the fight to, to legalize birth control is a racist argument, right. The film she makes the next year, um, which doesn't survive, unfortunately, seems from a script to be more complicated and more interesting. And that's the, that's a film called The Hand That Rucks the Cradle. Mm-hmm. Weber herself acts in the film. It's her last appearance on screen. And she plays um, uh, an advocate very clearly um, modeled on Margaret Sanger, uh, a woman who's advocating for birth control, but also for um, sexuality within bourgeois marriage. And so that that film seems like it might be less tainted with the classist and, mm-hmm. and racist ideology, but I don't want to apologize for her. I mean, it's clearly there. Um, and that's part of, I think, what makes the films interesting to me is that, that they are so complicated and they're so tied to their moment, to mm-hmm. all of the complications of that moment. Yeah, I like messiness, so I'm, I'm totally <laughs> fine with the messiness. Um, and now let's talk about her film, though, The People versus John Doe, yeah. right? This one about capital punishment. And you specifically discuss the sort of significance of having the female protagonist in this film um, uh, be the lawyer. Is that right? Yes. And so any idea on how badly she had to actually fight um, from the archives that you went through, how how badly should a fight to have a female protagonist? Because I sort of struck by, you know, where you write about how uh, women here were both the victims and the agents of change, you know, in your book. And you talk about how, um, you know, that this was one of the clearest here on page 97, you talk about the clearest screen surrogate for female viewers ready to take up a cause outside of the theater. And so you're really sort of drawing into um, this sort of significance beyond really mm-hmm. the the visual dimension too. Yes, yes. I think and I think that that's true of all of her social problem films that she makes in the in the 1910s is that women are both often the primary victims and the agents of change and it's probably most noticeable in the Hand the Rocks a Cradle, where Weber herself is playing this birth control advocate who's imprisoned, um, but ultimately wins the fight. Um, or in um, The People versus John Doe, where it's the um, 
female attorney of uh, a man falsely accused of murder and falsely um, condemned to execution, uh, who are kind of screen, as I said, screen surrogates for um, women in the audience to think of themselves as capable of acting outside the theater. And I think that's really important. Um, I think she is um, not just dramatizing these issues in, in these high-profile fiction films, but she's suggesting to women in the audience that there are things they can do outside the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's interesting is, as far as I can tell, she had so much power and so much creative control. This was She was at the height of her power at this point. She was the top director at Universal. She's one of the top paid directors in all of Hollywood. She could do whatever she wants. And she was writing and directing her own material. And I I didn't find any evidence that Universal at that point was trying to stop her. Um, she was making money for them. Um, and she was, in fact, they, they came to her defense around censorship issues. So when the birth control films were censored, when the capital punishment film was censored, sh- they came to her defense and fought um, with the National Board of Censorship to um, get these films released. Yeah, so she then was able to reach this level of status that then because she was able to bring in money to Universal and yes. they became, yes. then she became sort of protected in a different kind of way. Yes. But that changed, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So this, mm-hmm. we're talking sort of 1916, 1917. She forms her own production company yes. in 1917 because yes. she's so powerful. But by um, the late teens and early 20s, she is she's struggling and she's being recast as a woman's filmmaker, um, sort of the kiss of death, mm-hmm. right, even now in Hollywood. Um, and and her, fil- her older films are being called preachy, and critics are saying, why does she insist on this? these sermons? And her attention to social issues is being criticized and mocked, and she's being denigrated through this idea that she's a woman's filmmaker. Yeah, I was sort of struck about how short-lived the Lois Weber productions ended up being, yeah. um, given the sort of stature she was able to um, to uh, reach. But then at the same time, I was sort of thinking how incredibly difficult it would have been in 1917 to start your own production company. Um, and that this was really one of those unaccustomed roles that you talk about in the book, right? Unaccustomed roles that women were doing. Um, and then it's, you know, and for me, it struck me that this was probably one of the main reasons why she's an important person to know. Um, and so I, I really sort of appreciated the the ways in which you, uh, you know, talked about the tangible things that she did, but also sort of coupled it with an understanding that she's really going into uncharted waters in, yes. in, in, in really clear ways. Yes. And, you know, when I started the project, I was really interested in that moment of the kind of height of her power when she's making all these social issue films. But then as I continued in the research, I found that the the period in her career when she's struggling in the 20s, um, when she's working in a very different industry where, you know, power has consolidated in a very few studios whose names we still know, mm-hmm. who still dominate the industry, um, when, you know, glamour and entertainment is now dominating Hollywood, not social issues. Um, I found that that period when she's struggling is just as interesting, if not more interesting, um, because she begins to speak out. Um, She begins to make films that are against the grain, and then she starts to speak out in interviews. She starts to write a syndicated newspaper column where she's really talking about how it's now difficult for her to work in Hollywood as a woman, how she's not respected in the way she was in the past. And so that became really interesting to me as well, to look at that, that whole period of struggle and I won't say failure, but struggle. 
Yeah, there's a real power shift at that moment for yeah. her in that time. Yeah, and that was really clear in the book. Um, let's go back really quickly to the capital punishment film. Yes. Um, because I had a couple other questions that I sort of want us to talk through. Um, I was, you know, you talked about how this film was so received by, you know, abolitionists, the capital punishment movement, um, really supportive of the film. Was that kind of reception unusual for sort of an activist or advocate groups to latch onto a film because they did public free public screenings in New York and and other, um, you know, other ways of, of showing support? Was that kind of a merger or kind of a coalition un- unusual? No, I would say that was typical of that moment of of social problem films. So, for instance, um, not only did the uh, abolitionist groups latch on to the People versus John Doe, but um, the Birth Control League um, was interested in Weber's films. Um, women suffragists um, paid for uh, feature films to be made about the suffrage campaign and then appeared in theaters themselves to speak and show the film. So there was, a, I think, a real interest. I, I think a lot of social movement groups saw the potential of cinema uh, in that moment of the progressive era. That was gone by the 20s. Um, But there was a lot of synergy, I think, between those two. I think Weber embodied a a trend of of seeing cinema, seeing the, the, again, the activist potential of cinema. Right. right? This is this critical outlet, right? That's probably, it's, you know, newly forming at the time Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk to about in the book about how, um, you know, that maybe one of the shortcomings of the film was sort of the focus on quote unquote, the innocent, right? Is the innocent being the one who is put on trial and it reproduces his narrative in which we can fight for the innocent, but everybody else we can't, you know, that that, those become suddenly now, um, that's the, that's the really core problem. Um, was another limitation you think on the way race was obscured here? Cause she uses the pseudonym John Doe. Um, and you talk about the pseudonym, the pseudonym as actually an attempt to make the character relatable yet understanding that it also obscures and tends to skirt around, um, other kinds of issues of race at the time, especially because it sounds like by the end of the film, there is sort of, um, uh, sense that this this might be a person of color um, who's the innocent one. So I don't know if we could unpack a little bit the the ways in which race um, racial aspects get obscured and then also actually become sort of oddly prominent at the same time. Yes, um, and this, so this is another case where you know, as I talked about with where are my children in the birth control campaign, where what sounds like uh, a great film on the surface, it's a film against capital punishment, is really complicated when you start to look at the politics. Now, the film doesn't survive. Um, there are, fra- I've seen, you know, like a minute of footage that survives uh, and some stills. It doesn't survive. But from what I can tell, um, reading about it, reading the coverage at the time, uh, it was based on an actual case. Uh, and the original title of the film had that man's name in its title. Uh, she did have, Universal did actually ask her to change the title. Um, and so it was very much tied into an actual case. Um, but I think that it for, it seems to me that in, in shifting the name, well, there's, there's two issues. One that you pointed out is that the case against capital punishment is made with an innocent man. So that's only a partial case against 
a state execution. That's right. a very partial case against state execution. Um, it be, it becomes about a whole other thing. And then the other piece of the argument is that it does seem as if um, the innocent man is racialized in ways that aren't entirely clear because the film doesn't survive. Um, and that there's this odd overlay in, in renaming him John Doe from Charles Stilo, which was the case it's actually based on, um, that it is whitewashing him in a certain mm-hmm. sense, but then also drawing attention to that erasure at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's an odd move. Mm-hmm. Um, but without the film surviving, it's harder. It's hard to tell. Right. Right. It's harder to piece that part together. Um, You're listening to Shelley Stamp, professor in the film and digital media department here at UC Santa Cruz and the author of Lois Weber and Early Hollywood, award-winning book, I should say. Um, Well, we have a few more minutes. and I just had a couple more questions for you about the the work. Um, I wanted to sort of think about parallels that can sort of be drawn from the experiences that Lois Weber had in this very male-dominated environment to what women filmmakers and artists are experiencing today. Are you seeing parallels um, that can be made between her life experience and what you know, you know what we know now about what's happening to, to women artists and filmmakers? Yes, and I think I think we're at a really critical juncture right now because I think that there are three things that are happening at once. One is that prominent women and people of color who are stars and filmmakers are speaking out about their own experiences, about the equity issues that they fought for or the discrimination that they faced or their difficulty getting projects they want. That's one. Two is there's a lot of new statistical research that backs up this individual experience. So the Annenberg School at USC has just released another one of its diversity reports yesterday that tells us everything we already know, which is how few speaking roles women and people of color have in contemporary films. And then the third piece of it is that there there are, um, there's a lot of historical research. I'm not alone. There's a lot of historical research into um, histories of early Hollywood or Hollywood histories. And those three things together, the the um, personal experiences, the statistics, and um, the historical research are creating this, this picture of um, uh, an of inequity in industry that's 100 years old. But what's interesting to me about the Weber's case in particular is that I I feel like it it teaches us two lessons. One is it reminds us that what we are constantly told is has never been done is impossible, was done 100 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? Um, A woman was very powerful, one of the top directors in the industry, one of the highest paid directors in the industry, um, respected in every way, allowed creative freedom. Um, We're told that's never happened, and it has. So that's an interesting piece to remember, right? We're not, we're constantly forgetting that history and having to be retold that history. Um, Because erasing that history has an impact on what's going on now, right? It's never been done. You're trying to do the impossible. Mm -hmm. But then also, I think that um, her, the, the, shift in in her experience in Hollywood that I talked about a minute ago, where she goes from being having so much power and so much creative control to having to fight for respect from an all-male crew by the late 20s, um, reminds us that 
and the way in which she was erased from Hollywood history, even during her lifetime, reminds us that the industry is invested in um, uh, in a kind of idea of itself um, as an industry that is predominantly male and predominantly white. Yeah, that that investment's pretty deep. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I found, you know, her uh, sort of trajectory, you had talked about the, in the intro, right, the trajectory is really following and paralleling what was happening and the changes happening there in Hollywood. But I found there's something almost a little sad to me by the end of, of the book, because she has been sort of so systematically and culturally erased from just Hollywood history and Hollywood memory um, that we make a big deal now for the first woman filmmaker, but then we forget, of course, that there were there, there were uh, precedents had mm-hmm. set by her. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I know you're working on another book because you can't stop writing books. Yeah, I'm actually working on two books oh because my I'm gosh, crazy. Two books. Um, so one is. Um, really a kind of expansion of what I started to do here with the Lois Weber Project. Um, It's a book I'm co-writing with um, my colleague Ann Morey, who teaches at Texas A&M. And we're writing uh, a book called Women in the Silent Screen in America, which makes the argument that um, women were at the heart of forming movie culture in the U.S. Uh, So we're looking at women who worked in Hollywood at all levels, not just directors and screenwriters, but all of the telephone operators and seamstresses and title writers. We're looking at the legions of female moviegoers. Um, There's something like 75 to 90 percent of moviegoers were women in the silent era. And then we're looking at um, all of the critics and journalists and teachers and librarians and activists who wrote about cinema, who used cinema uh, in their activism and teach classrooms and libraries. And and we sort of put that all together to make this argument that women were at the heart of American movie culture, which is a story that's not told. Right? Um, so that's exciting, daunting, exciting. Um, and then the newest thing I'm working on, which is very early but very exciting, is, is I'm moving out of the silent era for the first time to think about um, film noir in the 40s. Um, and I I'm searching for evidence of an original female audience for noir, which I think was considerable. It's it's usually considered the quintessential guy um, genre, but I think there's considerable evidence that it was marketed to and watched by a lot of women. That's amazing. So those are the two books that you're working on now. All right. To yeah. be continued, our conversations with Shelley Stamp. So thank you so much for coming and being with us today on Artists on Art. You've been listening to Shelley Stamp, uh, UCSC professor in the film and digital media department, the author of the award-winning book, Lois Weber and Hurley Hollywood. Um, if you're interested at all in this fascinating person, I would strongly recommend reading the book. I really enjoyed, um, I enjoyed reading it. So thank you so much, Shelley, for coming. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Artists on Art. We are now joined by Edward Ramirez. Uh, Edward Ramirez is a UCSC graduate and received a BA in Sociology and Fine Art. He is currently working in town at the Day Worker Center as the interim coordinator. As an artist, one of his main goals is to raise awareness to social occurrences that he views are controversial within our society. Edward utilizes the medium of photography 
printmaking and his sociological imagination in order to produce work that addresses certain issues he views as provocative within our world. He enjoys creating interdisciplinary work on the grounds that it allows him to convey a message to his audience that is both mentally stimulating and compelling in addition to aesthetically pleasing. Welcome, Edward, to Artists on Art. Thank you so much, Silvana. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Now, you were involved with the uh, Working for Dignity project. And let me tell um, the listeners a little bit about that project. This was a collaborative research project done by the UC Santa Cruz Center for Labor Studies, the Chicano Latino Research Center, the California Real Legal Assistance, and members of the larger Santa Cruz County community. So this project emerged when the CRLA, the California Rural Legal Assistance, which provides free legal services to the community, noticed a shift of county workers from agriculture into low-wage services, but really found no reliable data on the trend and noting uh, and nothing on the experiences of workers themselves. So this involved a coalition or collaboration of over 100 undergraduate students who were involved in this incredible project, and they received training in every aspect of the project, background research, data management, analysis, and your role, I assume, here in the visual documentation piece of it, and um, to website development. And you can learn more about the Working for Dignity project on uh, their website, workingfordignity.ucsc.edu. I really urge all of you to go to this website. It's It's an incredible research project. Um, and it's, I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you about your role here. Um, Edward, I know some of the photos were recently on display in downtown Santa Cruz at the library. Are they still there? Yes, very true. Um, yeah, they're there till about mid-September. Um, they've been there since, I believe, since July. Um, and and they are there until mid-September, yeah, on the second floor. On the second floor. Yeah. So in downtown Santa Cruz Library, the second floor, you can see some of Edward's work. Um, now, your role in the project was of visual documentation. Can you tell our listeners what that means? What does visual documentation mean? Of course, yeah. <clears throat> so um, I began to um, become involved in this project during my senior year at UCSC. Um, I'm a sociology, oh, I am a sociology and uh, fine art undergrad um, graduate and now um, I was involved in that project because um, I really wanted to connect uh, what I was learning in sociology with what I was the practices I was learning in art as well Um, so I reached out to Steve McKay which was the professor in charge of this project um, and he is also uh, the head of the Center for Labor Studies at UCSC and um, I talked to him about my interest in uh, being involved in the project, and he knew I'd, I had some uh, art background as well. And I seriously, I honestly just wanted to um, glorify and give dignity to the workers that I was documenting. So I would go to different work sites around the county, um, talk to the workers um, about their conditions and what they were experiencing, and try to capture that in my photographs. Um, I primarily shoot in uh, film. I use a analog cameras, mostly 120 film and 35 millimeter. Um, I do everything here at the studio. I'm lucky enough to be a monitor at UCSC, uh, the print studio and the darkroom as well. So that allowed me to um, do the work and uh, create the work that uh, that is now visible um, throughout the website and in the community. Yeah. 
And can you tell us a little bit about how you went, um, the process for identifying which workers to, mm-hmm. photog- uh, to photograph, and did the workers themselves have to sign any kind of release to permit, you know, permission for the, the photographs to be used on the website and also on this display? Right. So um, I was actually, I was primarily interested in day workers because um, I noticed around the city that uh, folks would ha- gather in front of San Lorenzo uh, Lumber and Home Depot. And I was just intrigued as to see why folks are hanging hanging out in front of there. Um, and uh, Steve McKay, the professor of this uh, project, uh, got me connected with uh, the Day Worker Center of Santa Cruz County. And um, I began doing my service there. I began volunteering at the center, um, seeing with whatever they may need. Um, I would begin assisting by uh, translating documents or helping workers fill out applications, um, or you know any other various tasks, and I, I was also there to photograph uh, some of the experiences that the workers were going through. Um, in the beginning, I would uh, you know start a conversation with them, get to understand them, and know a little bit about where they're coming from, and um, just to try to build a relationship because um, uh, I'm a very I would say closed off person. Um, and I'm not, you know, I wouldn't want anybody just to come up to me and say, hey, let me take your picture or, or let me do X, Y, and Z for you. Um, I like to build a relationship first with the people I photograph so that um, they know I'm not trying to do anything that would be harmful or hurtful to them. Um, I operate completely off respect and, you know, dignity. Um, and, yeah, so we came to uh, an understanding with myself and the workers, and um, I would go to different work sites that they would be at, um, you know, capture them working, give them honor and dignity and, and to some of the the things that they were doing. Because a lot of the time, um, we don't really think, uh, well, I don't know, it, I'm kind of generalizing, but a lot of folks don't, um, you know, say thank you to the person that is serving them, you know, and I always thank the person with a smile or, you know, an honest thank you and always, you know, try to communicate with them and start a conversation. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, that's a important gesture to do. Um, now, because you went to the work sites to take some of the photographs, were there any issues of safety that you had to also think about? Like, were they worried that they would get in trouble by their bosses or they would get fired or anything like that? Because right. once, you know, the photograph now becomes sort of part of record. Right. So, yeah, a lot of the time we would have to um, verify with their employers um, to see if it would be all right for us to come in, um, the photography team to come in um, and capture them. Um some of the times they would not allow us because um, they wouldn't feel comfortable doing so. Um, but yeah, many of the time we would have to ask for permission and get, uh, yeah, get permission from both the worker and the employer. Yeah. Were there any images in particular of the workers that still haunt you that you are sort of still taken or riveted with um, mm-hmm. that have sort of stayed with you, you know, many months post project? Right. Um, so the project. I, I think about it, I'm still kind of continuing the project right now um, because my involvement with the Day Worker Center um, as the interim coordinator, I, I hear about a lot of stories um, a lot of the time, not necessarily having captured the images that are associated with that. But there are some stories that um, workers have told me um, about some instances where abuse happens, where um, they're not paid at the end of the day or they're hurt on the job site and 
Um, the employer wants them off their property because they don't want to deal with the liability or the issues that occur after it. Um, so, yeah, there are some stories that uh, do haunt me till this day, and uh, um, they're, they're a bit personal. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to really um, discuss them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, definitely I've heard some stories. Yeah, yeah some nightmare stories. Around the county, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Now, in your bio, you mentioned that you're sort of drawn to controversies and that you mm-hmm. seek to provoke a discussion. What kind of controversies do you feel you were addressing through the visual documentation aspect of the Working for Dignity project? Mm-hmm. And what kinds of discussions are you hoping to provoke with your work? Right. Um, so some of the issues that I, I wanted to raise was, <clears throat> you know, the idea of wage theft, um, folks not getting paid on time or at the end of the workday after having worked um, a complete day or being injured on the job side and not having um, any form of, you know, uh, assistance to try to get better. Um, there there are um, several issues uh, relating to immigration and legal status that I think is, is important to raise up um, because uh, a lot of our, our workforce here in this country is on immigration and, and undocumented folks, and we need to really... Um, be aware of that and respect those individuals as much as possible. Yeah. Now, are there photographs that you took that you wish could have been included in the in the final project? Mm-hmm. And are there any plans to maybe show some of the work that you were not able to include as in that project um, right. elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were definitely some photos that um, I took that um, the worker um, allowed me to take, but. Um, thinking about it in, um, and trying to, um, to select the curated uh, amount of photos to display, we felt that those images didn't really um, go with what we were trying to convey. Um, and uh, we, have, we do have an online um, kind of gallery that uh, displays a, a good majority of the photos that are not displayed in the library right now. And is it or the website? Do you have the website? Yeah, the Working for Dignity. Oh, that uh, website. Okay. Yes. The workingfordignity.ucsc.edu. Yes, ma'am. Website. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, you indicated also in your bio that monochromatic film photography is the key for your artistic process because you believe uh, that using black and white allows individuals to focus on the content and the messages being presented. Right. How did you come to this understanding of monochromatic film photography? Mm-hmm. And um, and is this sort of maybe walk us through a little bit about what you're what you're getting at there? Right. Definitely. Um, so I. I've first became, became introduced to uh, black and white photography here at UCSC during my uh, second year as a sophomore um, in the class of Will, uh, Lewis Watts, who was a, a professor here at UCSC. Um, and he introduced, us, he introduced me to black and white, and I really enjoy um, black and white because I enjoy um, that I have something tangible to work with and that um, I am able to manipulate light and distort it as best as possible. Um, I enjoy that uh, with black and white, I really have to think more before I click the shutter and make sure everything is correct. Um, shutter speed, light, aperture. Um, I enjoy that the, the time it takes, uh, you know, it takes, it's a much longer process to develop just to, um, to do one image. And I really enjoy having the time to think, of, think about the work I've uh, taken and captured and it allows me to kind of meditate and think about in retrospect what I'm trying to do. And so you 
had you always sort of had a longing to be a, a photographer or an artist, uh, or is that something you sort of came to when you came here to Santa Cruz? Right. Um, well, I've always been in tr- interested by uh, art, but uh, coming from Los Angeles, I grew up in the inner city. There wasn't too much opportunity there for arts. Um, Where did you grow up in LA? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, um, which is uh, not too, which is a kind of impoverished location of the city. There's not too much happening there right now, but I was uh, privileged and blessed enough um, so that my parents would send me to private school, um, and I managed to, you know, stay stay my stay focused and stay focused on my education, and made it to UCSC. Um, but art was always around me. Um, I was always interested in graffiti and uh, urban art. Um, and it's kind of a contrast because I'm more of a, a structured and very purist uh, type of artist. Um, but graffiti is like a different side to me that I like to let out uh, some days. Yeah. That's the L.A. in you. That's the L.A. in me. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is the LA in you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the appeal of printmaking. I used to live. I lived in Los Angeles before moving oh, to Santa great. Cruz. That's why I'm saying it's the LA in yeah. you. I know. <laughs> um, the appeal of printmaking. Uh, you talked about the appeal of printmaking too, um, as his involvement of the physical. Right. That that this is something very appealing to you as an artist. The the physicality of the work being produced. Can you walk? Uh, can you sort of talk to listeners about what aspect of the what is it the physicality that you're getting at this dimension to printmaking that you're um, that you sort of gain a lot out of as an of artist? Course. Yeah. So when when talking to the workers, um, uh, when capturing the images for this project, they would let me know about their long days at work and how it would be physically gru- grueling, and how um, their employers would be. Um, I'm not sure how to say exigente, mm-hmm. uh, insistent, insistent yeah. um, about they do this uh, this job a certain way, um, and having talked to so many folks that have gone through that, I kind of wanted to include that in my project. So um, I decided to use uh, the medium of photo-based lithography um, in order to produce the images um, that you see on display at the downtown Santa Cruz uh, Library, um, and. Photo-based lithography is a is a bit of a long process. It takes it takes about I would say close to twenty hours to produce maybe an image. Um, there's a whole process where you have to scan the film, develop a transparency, expose it on a plate, um, manually print the plate, so actually ink it and run it through a a press, um, and that idea, um, really, I wanted to involve that idea within the project because the workers were explaining to me um, their long days of work and how they would be exhausted, and I wanted to kind of um, reenact that while producing the work, so I wanted to be exhausted. And I also wanted to to uh, share some of the their experience, even though it wasn't... Um, the labor that they were describing, it was uh, lab- my type of labor, the labor that I that I wanted to present. Mm-hmm. There was there's sort of an uh, an empathy there that exactly. in, in, by making that kind of um, connection. Right. You're listening to Edward Ramirez, UCSC graduate in sociology and fine art, and one of the artists involved in the Working for Dignity project. Um, you can learn more about the Working for Dignity project on their website, workingfordignity.ucsc.edu. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked uh, Claudia Lopez last week, who she was here, also a photographer for an exhibit. You might know her, actually, in sociology. Yeah. Um, 
uh, for an exhibit called Expulsion about Displacement. What What is it about the power of the photo that moves people so much? We talked about, um, you know, we sort of, in the context of that conversation, we're talking about the, the image of the Syrian boy that's sort of gone viral and people talking about this might have the power to change the conversation. There's a clear power to photos, and I would love to kind of get your take on what is this power like, how would you describe this power? What is this power about right. um, a- as a narration of injustice? Yeah, I think photography is a, is a great tool um, in order to, you know, promote social justice and equality for all. I think photographs have an you know, amazing power to change um, and to, to connect people and communities. Um, I think that photography allows people to, you know, see the reality that, that exists in the in the world, and you know I understand that now the digital era has like manipulation and alterations, but um, I believe that photography is a great tool um, for speaking the truth and for delivering a message. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, what dominant narratives about low wage labor are out there that you're hoping the work that you did uh, with your photos is, is trying to counter and trying to dispel? Mm-hmm. Well. I want, I hope that folks understand that um, undocumented individuals are necessary, um, in, are necessary members of our community, um, and that they should be respected and um, involved, and not excluded. I want um, individuals to know that uh, day workers are, are there to help out the community and not there to hurt or take anyone's job away. Um, they're there to facilitate and to learn and to be involved um, and to help out the community as best as they can. Yeah. Can you tell listeners what you're working on now, what kind of art you're doing and, and what would be some of your next projects? Of course. Yeah. Right now I'm, I'm currently in, collabor- in collaboration uh, with the collective. Uh, they're called the Deba Collective, which is also a nonprofit in San Jose. And we're trying to do a cross-border project uh, with folks in Tijuana. Um, so we're trying to begin a project dealing with uh, race and status and uh, gender. Um, and we're trying to, we're in the beginning stages of developing a project in order to try to start a conversation with folks both in the Bay Area and in Tijuana. Yeah. How did that, is that, that's an early formation project that's happening right, right now? Yeah, okay. um, I'm actually, uh, as a result of this project, um, uh, David Bacon, a photojournalist in uh, the Bay Area, came yeah. out and saw the exhibit, and he invited me, he invited me to be a part of this collective, and I've been honored and uh, privileged to be a part of this, and um, I'm really lucky, yeah. Definitely. Well, I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of Edward um, yeah. in the future. I want to really thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your work and especially your role with the Working for Dignity Project. I know that this is an ongoing project. There's money, you know, there's another phase that mm-hmm. Steve McKay is working on in terms of housing um, in the county that obviously goes hand in hand with the low wage worker. And I really appreciate the kind of approach that you talked about today in terms of treating workers with dignity. Um, and from little gestures to big gestures, it all it, it all sort of matters. I also want to give a thank you to Keith Rosendale, who helped with the engineering. I forgot to give him my recognition and thanks last week. And so I'm giving him double thanks because he also helped this week. So thank you to Keith for being the master board engineer for today. So um, you're listening to KZAC 88.1 FM. And this is Artist on Art. Thank you so much for listening today.